morning, everybody. Good to see you guys here. Glad you are here. Thank you for thank you for coming this morning. I was thinking about that. I know that that uh, we're all busy and and it's a beautiful day outside. And uh, I was just thinking as I was worshiping, I was like, man, this is this is like the best way I could use my Sunday morning and uh, to come worship the Lord. And I, I'm, I'm thankful you guys are here too. Uh, as, uh, as Matt said, just want to remind you about the prayer gathering this Tuesday night. Um, our last one was just incredible, and I would love to invite you to come to this also. Uh, we'll share a meal together at 6 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall across the way, and then we'll move over to the chapel and just pray together for 45 minutes or an hour. And um, if... if uh, if you if you're not a, would if you don't consider yourself a good prayer that's that's okay like there there's not good prayers and bad prayers okay um, and honestly if you want to learn how to pray what does it look like to talk to God because maybe for whatever reason that's a foreign concept for you or you grew up in a church where it was intimidating I would just encourage you to come even if you're we, you sit in the circle and you don't say anything. You just listen to others and listen and learn from others. How do we pray? And essentially, you know what? It's just, it's talking to God. He's your best friend. He made you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And, and he calls you to a life of prayer. And we look forward to um, following the early church's example and, and praying together uh, for boldness uh, to courageously live out uh, the love of Jesus and to speak the gospel. And we want to pray also uh, this week for, for our loved ones who don't know Jesus and for our neighbors who don't know Jesus. And so um, bring them with your, on, your, on your hearts and in your minds. And man, let's pray together uh, this Tuesday. And uh, more details are listed in your bulletin about that. If you're new with us, uh, thanks so much for, for being here. My name's Dan, and uh, I'm glad you are here. Um, we are reading through a great book of the Bible called The Acts of the Apostles. And the Holy Spirit of God led a Christian physician named Luke to write uh, this book in the first century A.D. Uh, Luke was an eyewitness to, to many of these events, and he wrote down what happened to Jesus' disciples after Jesus rose from the dead and returned to heaven. And one thing that we've seen so far is that uh, the disciples of Jesus were committed to teaching and preaching the good news or the gospel of Jesus. And one Bible verse that summarizes the gospel nicely is one that we all know or at least have seen referenced at football games, and that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so the good news of Jesus is news. The gospel of Jesus is news of what God has done to rescue us from Satan and sin and hell and death. So the gospel is not something that you and I do. The gospel is something that's been done for us. It's what Jesus did in his perfect life, in his um, sin-bearing and, and wrath-bearing death on the cross in our place. It's what Jesus did in rising from the dead to justify us and claim us righteous in God's sight forever. That is the great news, the good news of God. And this was the central message taught in the early church by the first Christians. Uh, and they preached this to Christians, and they re-preached this to Christians. 
and they preached it to non-Christians as well. And as we've seen in the book of Acts, um, when people trust Jesus and when they allow God to transform their lives, they begin to demonstrate their trust in Jesus through their actions. Uh, their, their faith in Jesus is not something they just say they have. Their faith is something that actually transforms the way that they act and the things they do. So far in Acts, we've seen the Christians demonstrate their faith in a number of, of ways. Uh, it, it's, it tells us that uh, they demonstrated their faith through being baptized, through praying together often as a church family, through telling non-Christians the gospel of Jesus, through sharing meals together, through taking the Lord's Supper together. Uh, they acted out their faith through listening to biblical preaching and teaching, uh, through selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to all, through performing miracles in Jesus' name when prompted by the Holy Spirit, through testifying in court to the truth of the gospel of Jesus, and through continuing to speak the gospel even when the court threatened them that they would be punished if they continue to do that. Well, all of these actions of the early Christians confirm what James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in James 2.17. He says, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's read that in context. James 2.15-17, it says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you, Christians, says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And these words set us up nicely for today's passage in Acts. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32 with me. And if you don't have a Bible uh, with you today, then we'll put the verses on the screen for you to follow along. But um, I encourage you to bring a Bible so that uh, you can follow along throughout the whole sermon and see, your, see for yourself what God says in his, in his word. I preach from a translation of the Bible called the English Standard Version. And before we dive in here, let's, let's ask the Lord to help us. Um, Lord, we thank you for being so merciful and gracious to us. We thank you that you have loved us with um, long-suffering, uh, an enduring, and abundant love. You loved us when we were far away from you. You say when we were still enemies of yours, we lo you loved us. And we thank you, God, for not punishing us as we deserve. And we thank you for blessing us graciously in so many ways that we, we don't deserve. Uh, and Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd fill us in a special way now as we read your word. Please, please move in our hearts, move in our souls. Stir up in us a, a, a greater desire for you. Uh, help us, Lord, to love you the way you want us to love you with all our hearts, our souls, our minds, and strength. Um, help us, God, to give our faith action. Give us courage and boldness to follow you. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us, God, to step out in faith and to depend on you to show up and to give us what we need when we need it. We ask now for your protection physically and spiritually on our campus, and 
we, we want you to glorify your name in this place now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Acts 4, 32 to 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's where we're going to stop for today. So the first Christians in Jerusalem, what we read here is, is they took care of one another in remarkable ways. Uh, you might remember Luke already wrote a similar passage to this in chapter 2. And he repeats himself again because he wants us to see that this is significant. He wants us to take note of this. The, the way that the first followers of Jesus made their uh, faith tangible, uh, this was exemplary. And so as we look at this today and ask how does this pertain to us, I want to answer three questions. First of all, what exactly was happening Two. Why was it happening? And three, should this happen today? Okay, I'll take those one at a time. First of all, what was happening here? Well, we, we read in verse 32 that none of the believers said that any of the things they owned belonged to them. That, that, that all of their belongings, uh, none of them was his own. Now, that there is incredible. <laughs> because in our natural condition... What are we? We don't think that way, right? Naturally, we're very selfish. Uh, as kids, we look at our toys and we say, those are my toys. Maybe not that nicely, okay? Those are mine, right? As, and as we grow up, we say, that's my phone. That's my computer. That's my Kindle. Those are my clothes. Those are my tools. Don't touch them. This is my car. This is my truck. This is my house. And because of the power of sin in our lives, our natural tendency is to be selfish and to be greedy for ourselves. But miraculously, this whole mind, mind, mind mindset was non-existent among the Christians here in Jerusalem at this time. And there were probably about 10,000 of them. Okay? Instead of attaching their identities to material possessions, these first Christians were remarkably detached from their possessions. Their stuff was just stuff to them. And according to the passage, they viewed their belongings as something they had to share with others. Verse 32 says that they, they voluntarily had everything in common. And so these Christians were remarkably detached from the things that they owned. Or maybe more, more accurately, they, they were remarkably detached from the need to cling onto their belongings at all costs. In fact, perhaps, probably, I mean, I would think there were Christians who were emotionally attached to their belongings, but it says that there was a spirit of agreement of, of, um, uh, among the Christians. This, this, uh, they were of one accord that it is, it is better to share our belongings than to 
than to be greedy and to grasp onto them for our own exclusive use and, and to advance myself at the detriment of everybody else. And it points out, you guys, something that, man, I wish I could preach a whole sermon on this. Maybe I will sometime, but we're going to touch it here. But as human beings, we need to be freed from the bondage of attaching our identity to our possessions. The world tempts us to see ourselves as valuable only if we buy certain products or own certain possessions. And this starts at a very young age, and it continues through the teenage years and up into adulthood. I remember, I was thinking this week, when I was six years old in first grade, there was a brand of shoes called British Knights. Does anybody remember British Knights? Anybody in here? Okay, a few. Okay. British Knights were the shoes that all the cool boys in class had. And I remember this vividly because I did not have a pair of British Knights. They were expensive shoes, and my parents couldn't afford to buy name brand clothing. We had three kids. We, we, t- we couldn't buy name brand clothing for everybody. And I distinctly remember this because one day I remember being in the gym at lunchtime where you're waiting, you know, for a hot lunch and you're in the line. And the boys in line would not let me stand next to them because I didn't have a pair of British Knights. I remember that. Now, this is the thing, you guys. Sadly, many people never grow out of this type of behavior. This is not an unusual occurrence. Instead, British Knights turn into bigger things. They turn into cars. They turn into types of jobs. They turn into careers. They turn into the amount of money you make. For whatever reason, we're taught from an early age in our culture that what gives us value is is what we own. And we need to be freed from that idea because it is a lie. It, It really is a ridiculous lie. And in order to be freed from that, I mean, so how do we get freed from that? I was thinking, well, it starts by we have to at least hear the truth and hopefully believe the truth. And Jesus says, I am the truth. And he says, he tells us the truth. And he says this, he says this very clearly. He says, you can own the whole world and you can own everything in it and still lose your soul. What good is that? He says. So he's saying, it doesn't matter what you have if you do not have Jesus. The most valuable thing you can have is God. It's a friendship with Jesus. Because this is what it means. It, it's it's kind of mind-blowing. It means that when you, when you belong to, uh, sorry, when you, when, when you have God, there's like this mutual belonging. You have a relationship with him. But what makes you valuable is, is, that, you, is that you belong to him. He owns you. He bought you on the cross. You're his child. And, and there's just nothing that could possibly make you more valuable than belonging to Jesus. And the funny thing is that when God actually really helps us to understand this, that, that we're valuable just because he loves us, he begins to help us see that the things that we own aren't nearly as important or as fulfilling as we thought they were at one time. 
Last week, I, cro- I quoted some lyrics by a band named Beautiful Eulogy. Today, I'm going to do a double header, okay? I'm, I'm, this is a rare thing. I don't normally ra- quote rap songs, but there's a Christian rapper named Lecrae, and, and th- last night, this song came to me, so I'm like, I got to share this. He has this song called Identity, and here's the chorus. He says, I am not the shoes I wear. I am not the clothes I buy. I am not the house I live in. I am not the car I drive. I am not the job I work. You can't define me by anything on God's green earth. My identity is found in Christ. It's found in Christ. That is the mindset we want to have as believers. Because I think that taps into the truth. That taps into what, what Jesus has really accomplished for us and what he wants for us to realize. And we need his help to believe this. We need his help to think differently about our belongings than the way maybe that we used to think about our belongings or the way that the world around us thinks about belongings. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us that Jesus is who makes us valuable, not anything we own. And that's a battle. Kids, you're gonna... uh, (laughs) You're gonna have kids be mean to you and tell you you're not valuable because you don't have certain baseball cards or shoes or cell phones or whatever, and it's just baloney. Don't believe them. God loves you, and you need to know that that's what matters most right now. That's what is going to matter most when you're on your deathbed and for the rest of eternity. That's what matters most. And it's something that we have to keep It's something that we can believe for a second and then it just kind of goes away. We have to keep fighting to believe that truth. Now, in addition to the the early church's culture of of sharing their belongings with one another, uh, verse 33 says that the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with great power and great grace was upon them all. So the apostles, uh, the apostles, remember at this point, were the 11 remaining disciples of Jesus, plus Matthias. And these 12 apostles functioned as the pastors of this early growing church in Jerusalem. And even though the, the Jewish high court had threatened the Christians, they'd warned them to stop preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, the Christians kept telling people about Jesus. And the fact that the apostles, the apostles did this with, with great power indicates that the Holy Spirit was filling them. Uh, He was empowering them. He was blessing their preaching, and he was blessing everybody who heard it. Luke says that great grace was upon them all. So the Lord was being very gracious toward the apostles and toward the Christians and toward everybody in their midst. So the the early church had had this wonderful balance between preaching the good news of Jesus with power and also doing justice by caring for one another radically. And this is a great example for churches to follow today because if we're not careful, we can make the mistake of emphasizing one or the other. Um, A church that demonstrates good works without true doctrine is essentially just another humanitarian organization. We've got a lot of those in the community, and they're good, and they fulfill a purpose. But the church is called to be something different. Um, But a church that preaches true doctrine, but that has no good works, God says that's a dead church. That's a dead orthodoxy. 
Instead, what we see these first Christians in Jerusalem do is, is, is they had this sacrificial lifestyle combined with this gospel that they preached. And it made an, uh, an incredible impact on believers, but also on non-believers. And this impact was both physical and spiritual. And their example was felt for centuries to come. Because we know from, even from writers outside of the Bible in the first two centuries, much of what they wrote about was the way that Christians loved one another. And it was countercultural. It was unusual. Verse 34 adds that in addition to sharing their belongings with each other, the Christians even sold lands and houses that they had so that they could take care of their needy brothers and sisters in Christ. And there was not one needy person among them. That's remarkable. It's unheard of. This is a radical community, okay, transformed by the love of Jesus. That's what we're seeing here. Verse 35 says that this is how it would work. Christians would bring the proceeds from the properties they'd sold. They would lay it at the feet of the apostles. And the apostles made sure that the money was distributed among the believers as they had need. So it, it really gives us a, a cool picture here of the diversity of the church. Um, because this message, this gospel, this good news of Jesus is available to all types of people in all different people groups from all different geographic locations, what it does is the gospel gathers and unites a very diverse band of people. And among these first Christians in Jerusalem, here, some of them were slaves, okay? And some of them were widows and orphans. And some of them were day laborers, and they, they worked really hard, and maybe some of them were, were paid decently. Maybe some of them got paid very little for their hard work. And some Christians were wealthy, and they'd been blessed with properties and maybe substantial inheritances, but as God brought all these people together and, and showed them that they were all sinful, they were all in need of God's grace, they were, they were all recipients of God's love in Jesus Christ, he began to transform their hearts toward one another. Not only toward God, but toward one another. And he gave them eyes to see that uh, we are a family. And we are God's family. And we're united in Jesus because Jesus is our head. And we have the same Holy Spirit inside all of us. So they began to take care of each other the way that families should take care of each other. Now to be clear, this passage is not teaching that it is sinful to have a lot of money. Okay? Rather, the passage is teaching that one evidence of a heart changed by Jesus is the sharing of one's wealth with others. And even more than sharing, the sacrificing of one's wealth with others in order to care for God's people. And also this passage is not, I have to say this again, it is not describing or prescribing for us any form of communism in which people are forced to share their money and resources with others. And Peter will explicitly say this in chapter 5, that that's not what's going on. What actually makes this even more incredible is that none of these Christians were forced to give anything. They gave this voluntarily. And years later, when the Apostle Paul instructed the Christians at Corinth 
on the topic of giving, he wrote, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. So, so what Paul instructs here and what was happening in Jerusalem here was not an attempt to make the rich poor or the poor rich. Rather, he wanted to promote fairness and equality among Christians. Okay. And as a result, those with more wealth wanted to share with the church because they believed that God had given them wealth and possessions in order to love others and in order to, to, to advance Jesus' mission on earth. And so this, this spirit of detachment from one's possessions and this radical generosity that we see here, this was in the Roman Empire extraordinary. This was not ordinary behavior in the first century. And the non-Christians took notice, like we've said. And many of them wanted this. They want, this is so countercultural. They looked in and they, they saw the extraordinary love between the Christians. They saw the peace that Christians had. They weren't freaking out about their material possessions like everybody else. And they wanted it. They wanted what they had. And, and Christians were, were radically generous. They were radically committed to the church and they were radically committed to the message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. So that non-believers, when they encountered Christians, would say, um, I don't really buy into what they're teaching, but it's undeniable that they love one another and they love me. That's a powerful witness. <laughs> Let's move on to the second question, which is, why was this happening? Why were these Christians so motivated to, to make great sacrifices to care for one another? What, what made these Christians so different from you and me? Why, why did coming to faith in Jesus suddenly fill them with a, a great desire to sacrifice much for the glory of Jesus' name? What was the connection there? Well, I think the passage gives us four clues. First, they gave sacrificially because these were authentic born-again believers. First. Uh, verse 32 says that the people who were doing this were, quote, those who believed. So radical giving was not something happening among the unbelievers. This, uh, this was not happening by mere bystanders or by mere church attenders. So this reminds us that coming to church, it is a good thing. Hearing about Jesus is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't make somebody a believer. Rather, believing Jesus makes somebody a believer. Believing that Jesus is God. Believing that you need him. Believing that he lived a perfect life which you haven't lived. Believing that he died for your sins on the cross to suffer for you so that you won't suffer in hell. Believing that he really did rise from the dead and that you've been united to him through faith. That's what a believer believes. And being a believer, uh, it says something about what's happened to you. It means that, that God has changed you. That the old you has been crucified with Jesus. You've been united to Jesus through faith, so what happened to Jesus happened to you. Believe in Jesus means the old you was crucified with Jesus, with your sin on the cross. The new you was resurrected with Jesus from the dead, and you are now alive to God through faith in Jesus. It's incredible. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, died. Behold, the new has come. 
And this is why in John 3, 3, it says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. So in order to trust Jesus, in order to follow Jesus, in order even to want to obey Jesus, God must make you a new creation. You must be born again. And Jesus said that you won't see God, you won't see his kingdom unless you're born again. And so the very fact that the people in Jerusalem were, were sharing generously, they were giving sacrificially to the church, was a powerful evidence that God had truly made these people born again. Now obviously giving away your finances and possessions doesn't necessarily mean you're born again. There's lots of people who do that. But this passage explicitly points out that these people were believers and their radical generosity was a powerful evidence of their, their faith in Jesus and their love for the Lord. And in addition to the fact that these people were born again believers, the second reason they gave sacrificially is because they were filled with the Spirit. And in order to get that, you have to look at the context a little wider here than just these verses. Remember, immediately before today's passage, Acts 4.31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So, so immediately after these Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit, we read that they continued to witness to the outside world, and at the same time, they sacrificed much for the well-being of one another. And they gave joyfully and generously because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is the exact same way that Acts 2 lays it out. Uh, the Holy Spirit filled the Christians. They preached the gospel with power. And they were, it says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So <clears throat> when the Holy Spirit fills us with, with a special anointing of his presence and power, he... Uh, he empowers us to love what Jesus loves and to do what Jesus does. He, he empowers us to love the Lord so much that we really want to bless him even when it costs us much. And as we see here in Acts 4, it, it means we will preach the gospel even in the face of persecution. It means when we're filled with the Spirit, we'll give our money and our belongings to love others like Jesus has loved us. And third, these Christians gave sacrificially because they were united, okay? They were united in Jesus. Acts 4.32 says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And this theme of unity keeps popping up in Acts. The, these Christians were in full agreement about how they should do life together. They were of one heart and soul. Other passages say they were of one accord. Uh, it means that not just some of them were united. I mean, what does it say? It says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And again, it's just amazing because you're talking about a group at this point of 10,000 people. Um, it's hard to get 10 people to agree about the right way to do something, let alone 10,000. And so the, the unity of these Christians was evidence that the Holy Spirit was working. He was working in their hearts, and, and he was helping them to live out in their, their lives the, the spiritual reality that you, they were united in Christ. Uh, in Ephesians 4.4, 4, Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. 
And because we are one body, because we're filled with the one Holy Spirit of God, God urges us to maintain this unity that we have in Jesus. Philippians 2, 2 says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And Romans 15, 5 to 6 says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when believers live in harmony with one accord with Jesus Christ, what happens is we glorify the Lord together. We bring honor to the Lord. We point to the Lord's awesomeness when we live in harmony together. And um, the Christians in this passage were physically living this out. And by the power of the Spirit, they, they were in agreement that they should share their possessions and give generously to take care of one another and to advance God's mission on earth of spreading the gospel. And then the fourth reason why these Christians in Jerusalem gave sacrificially is because Jesus' resurrection from the dead had radically changed how they felt about their earthly belongings. The resurrection. I mean, seeing Jesus rise from the dead convinced these people wholeheartedly that there really is something beyond the physical world. Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that we will be conscious and alive on the other side of death. And, and we can't take any of our physical belongings with us to the other side. And that changes everything. That means that everything we can see with our eyes, everything we work for, everything we say that we own is extremely temporary and can be stripped away from us in a second. And so as, as thinking Christians, we must ask, or as thinking people in general, is there a deeper purpose for our belongings than temporary pleasure? Is, is there a way to use our money and our belongings now that will actually enhance our existence after this life? And the resurrection of Jesus says yes. Yes, there is. Because the way that you steward your resources on earth is directly related to how you experience life after death. Not only does Jesus' resurrection prove to us the, the reality of life after death, but also his resurrection proves to us that what Jesus says is true, that he is God, and that he rose from the dead. He predicted several times that he would rise from the dead. And so because he is the truth, we listen when he speaks. And the Bible is his speaking. So we listen to the Bible. And this means that what Jesus taught in the Bible about how we should steward our wealth and possessions is, is true and right. And we should not only listen to what Jesus has to say about these things, but also we should do our best to obey him. And in this way, we glorify God. We bring honor to his name, and at the same time, we seek our own blessing. And during his life on earth um, alone, Jesus had a lot to say about how we use our money and our resources because he knows our identity is often so much wrapped in these things. And we need to read the Bible to see everything that he said, but I'll, I'll just mention one of his teachings on this subject. In Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus says we can either choose to stockpile lots of treasures for ourselves on earth that we get to enjoy for a little while, but which will eventually be destroyed if they're not stolen first, or we could choose to stockpile our treasures in heaven where we will get to enjoy them for eternity and where they will never be destroyed or stolen. And the way that we stockpile our treasures in heaven is by devoting our earthly resources to Jesus' earthly kingdom. That's how we do it. While we are on earth, we sacrificially invest our money and our resources into God, his kingdom, his mission to love one another and to reach the lost. And when we do that, Jesus says that our investment lays up for us eternal rewards in heaven which we can't see yet, but which we will see and we will enjoy for eternity. And Jesus says that our souls, listen to this, our souls long to be wherever our treasures are. Our souls long to be wherever our treasures are. If we primarily stockpile our treasures on earth, then our souls will want to live on earth forever. And we'll be devastated when we die and lose everything we live for. However, if we primarily stockpile our treasures in heaven, then we will long for heaven. And when we die, we will be thrilled because we will finally get to enjoy all the treasures that we sent ahead. And the Christians in Jerusalem were living out this teaching. Um, they gave away much of what they had in order to help God's people. And seeing Jesus back from the dead made them glad to give away what they had because they knew that Jesus was good on his word and that they would, they would actually be more blessed to share their finances and resources than to hoard their finances and resources. And that when they did that, they trusted that God will still provide for my earthly needs. The Christians in this passage gave sacrificially to the church because they were truly born-again believers. They were filled with the Spirit. They were united in Jesus, and they were profoundly changed by the resurrection of Jesus, and it altered the way that they viewed their earthly belongings. And so, so, so far, we looked at what these Christians were doing. We talked about why they were doing it, and now I just want to talk briefly about this question. Should this happen today? And the short answer is yes, because it's totally consistent with all of the teaching in the Bible. God says all throughout his word that the lives of his people should be characterized by sacrificially giving to his kingdom. In verse 33, the fact that great grace was upon these Christians was a demonstration that God's favor was upon them for living this way. And Jesus is still alive. The Holy Spirit is, is still indwelling Christians today. God is still sovereign. We need to remember that. Does, does what, hap- what they did and what happened to them in the first century apply to us today? Yeah, does, well, does God still make people born again? Yeah, he does. Are people still saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus alone? Yes. 
Does God still fill believers with the Holy Spirit and empower them to live sacrificially for the glory of his name? Yes. Are Christians today still spiritually united in Jesus? Yes. Are we still able by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to care for one another and to take care of each other's needs as, as at the same time we tell the world about Jesus? Yeah, that hasn't changed. Has Jesus' resurrection changed our lives and our eternities? Yeah. And does Jesus' resurrection change the way that we feel about our earthly belongings? It should. Because how we use our finances and belongings is an expression of what we truly believe about Jesus, the truthfulness of his promises, and his mission on earth for us. So what, so what does this look like today? Well, just like the, the Jerusalem Christians brought their money to the apostles to use for God's kingdom, we Cedar Home Christians bring our money every week to the church to use for God's kingdom. And once a month, we take a special offering to help those in extra need, and the, the deacons distribute that money as they deem appropriate and according to whatever funds come in. So, so we need to pray for the deacons that they would have God's wisdom as they discern how to distribute the money that comes in. They need wisdom. And here at Cedar Home, we are very transparent about our finances, about how much money we have, how much, uh, how we spend our money, how, how the money uh, is budgeted. We publish our budget every year. We make it available to anybody who, who wants to see it. So there are no secrets about our finances here. And so... If God wants believers today to, to live sacrificially, to give generously like these first Christians did, then the question is how much should we give? How much should we sacrifice? Well, there are a lot of different opinions on this. A solid Bible teachers. But the main point I want to focus on right now is not on how much we give, but how we give. Because God says that how we give is really important. He, he tells us clearly in his word how we should give to his kingdom. In your bulletin, uh, on the back of the uh, preaching notes insert, there should be a, a little uh, insert that I found that I thought was helpful. I saw it in my ESV study Bible, and it says New Testament guidelines for giving. And I'm just going to read through that real quick. Um, this is what the New Testament teaches us about giving. Uh, that giving should be willing and cheerful. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving should be a regular pattern of life. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Giving should be proportionate to one's ability. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So in accordance with how God prospers you. Uh, giving should be generous. In a severe test of affliction, the Macedonians' abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave beyond their means. And giving should be sacrificial. The poor widow with two small copper coins is commended by Jesus for putting into the offering everything she had, all she had to live on. So this is, how, this is how God instructs us to give to his church and his kingdom today. Willingly, cheerfully, he says it's a, as a regular pattern of life, it's proportionate to one's ability, generously and sacrificially. And 
when we look at giving this way, we see that God calls everybody to live a life of sacrificial giving. No one's exempt. It's not just for people who have a lot of money. And so, so why do this? Why give money to the Lord and to his people? Why make radical sacrifices for the cause of Christ? Not just with your money, but with all your resources and your very life. The world will call you crazy. And so will many people who call themselves Christians. But we make great sacrifices to bless the Lord because he sacrificed everything to bless us. He didn't give us 15%. He gave us 100%. He, he left it all on the court. He went to the cross. He gave it, he gave it all to us. And we want to worship him with all that we are. We want to show Jesus that you are extremely valuable to us, Jesus. And we give to the Lord because um, we want to worship him, right? It's, a, it's about worshiping the Lord. We give to the Lord because he tells us to and we want to obey him. If we're his disciples, that means we do what our master says. We want to obey our master. We want to give to the Lord to thank him for all the ways that he's blessed us and provided for us. Um, we we want to thank him for providing for us financially. And then it's also a faith exercise too, right? Because when we give, we're, we're demonstrating that we trust that God will provide for our needs. Um, we give to the Lord to be part of his exciting mission for the church, to, to love one another and to spread the good news in our community and around the world. And we and we give to the Lord because we want to be wise with our investments. We, we want to invest in what will provide the greatest dividends. And so we trust Jesus, we step out in faith, we invest in eternal treasures that will never rot or be destroyed or stolen. That's where I want my money going. <laughs> in Matthew 6, Jesus tells us this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's after talking about physical food and clothing and possessions. He's saying, seek God in your life, seek God's will for your life, and he's gonna take care of you. That's what he's saying. So let's just pray that, that God would, would help us, right? That he would fill us with power to do this, to, to seek first his kingdom, to seek first his righteousness with everything that we are, and then to trust him that he will take care of us, he will provide what we need, and he will bless us in eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your generosity towards us. Um, you have given us everything, Lord. You've given us your very life. You've, you've, not, you've united us to yourself, and... If that weren't enough, you tell us that in eternity there are treasures eternally stored up for us, God. It's, it's incredible. Your grace is amazing, and you're an awesome God. You know our hearts, God. You know our concerns about finances. You know our, our, where we're at financially. You know all of that. Um, I just pray that you would help us, Lord. Help us to trust you more than we trust our money and our stuff. Help, help us to find our identity not in what we have or what we drive 
or what we wear, but to find our identity in you. Help us to be content and joyful in, in knowing you, Jesus. Um, help us to learn what it means to be good stewards of, of what you've given to us and to not ever think that, oh, this is mine because I worked for it, I paid for it. Help us remember you're the giver of everything. You're the giver, giver of the oxygen in our lungs that enable us to work, our eyes that enable us to see, our hands that enable us to do things. And uh, it's all yours, God. It is all yours. So I, I pray, God, that you would, you would help us to trust you and uh, that you would use our example as a church uh, to, to witness to our community of what loving one another looks like and what caring one, for one another looks like even when it costs us a lot. We, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.